0: There are no people, there are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Uh It is Monday, December 6, 2021. Welcome to Raging Chickens, Out to Coop Live. Yes, this is Kev Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts. Sorry, a little thing. Else. Troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and across the country. On Friday, Sean Kitchen and I break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And check out our Wednesday show. The Wednesday show with Cyril Micheleko. Cyril is a progressive columnist from the Bucks County Courier-Times and the Intelligencer. And he joins me every other couple weeks or so on Wednesdays to drill down into the Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show right now by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Simply head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. You can join us on our Discord server. Yes, our Discord server. Information on that is in today's uh, show notes or on our chat on Twitter twitter i'm not on twitter that's our chat in youtube or in the show description on youtube check it out there and tonight since we've got an open phones open comment session if you want to call into the show you can call in at any time just check out the information there on how to join through riverside.fm the link is in the show's description in today's youtube stream so do check that out for more pa progressive talk tune into the rick smith shows live stream at 9 p.m eastern on his youtube channel twitter facebook Wherever you get your streams, you can find them there. And make sure you subscribe to his daily podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Check out everything that Rick's got going on over the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. Like I've been saying, he's got a show now, WBAI in New York, KPFK in Los Angeles, just went on the air this past week in Chicago and Minneapolis. Boom! It's exploded. It's phenomenal. Check out the Rick Smith Show at the ricksmithshow dot com. And you have to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house, and they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at at The Night Caucus and subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts attention all you gamers out there you got a gamer in the house you looking for gifts for this holiday season well you got to check out the game in the game in that's with two n's the game in is a quaker town based black family owned gaming store they're friends of the show and they've got everything from retro n64s the latest consoles video games for all platforms collectibles action fingers funko pops you name it and the kids get a discount with every A on their report card. So definitely check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them at the, on Twitter at, at @thegamein. If you've got a question about a game, look for something that's hard to find. Shoot them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. That's thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @Songadayman. That's @Songadayman on twitter well how's everybody doing tonight uh yes it's uh just me tonight um i had some uh quite possibilities we could have swung something the last minute but i thought you know what let's do it kind of instead of a rush job let's do it kind of right and i had some things i wanted i was been thinking a lot about anyway so i thought it was a good night to come on Uh, but i do want to give you an update on some of the shows we've got coming up um, I've, I'm absolutely thrilled, <laughs> actually. So if you remember a couple of weeks back, about a week ago, I don't know, I'm losing track of time at this time of year. Um, I was It was right after that New York Times two-part podcast on Central Buck School District dropped, right? My plan was to do a little uh, kind of a, a, a Patreon-only show that would just be talking a little bit about that podcast. Um, and I was getting ready to do that, um, but then I got one better. So I think instead of trying to kind of do double duty here, um, we're gonna just do this. So I'm very thrilled that next week on this show, Out to Coop Live at 7 p.m., we're gonna have uh, Dina Lagerman will be on the show. Now, Dina, some of you already know her. uh, Dina was a school board candidate in Central Bucks School District. Um, She is a writer, she is a teacher, um, and she wrote this uh, amazing piece on um, Medium. She has a kind of Medium account. It's also, you can check her out on Substack. Uh, or uh, on Substack, a muckrack, I'm sorry. Um, she might have something on Substack, too, as well. I don't know. But she's, uh, she's a phenomenal writer, and she tells a story. And I think, frankly, she's got a first person's view of what this was like. And um, in that article she put together on Medium, and again, that the title of that article is Central Bucks is Not Okay, um, really covered some of the ground that I wanted to talk, except when I say one better, is because she's got an insider's view and she uh, kind of was felt directly the impact of what paul martino and this dark money um these funders um actually had done and you'll find it to be quite a different kind of story (laughs) when you hear it from her perspective on the show next week so do uh, tune in next week that's out to cool live on december 13th at 7 p.m and we will have dina lagerman on the show um talk about her article central bucks is not okay and so much more about what's happening in the school board and then um as a Christmas special, if you will, um on the uh the monday before christmas (laughs) went all through the house not a placard was stirring right no whatever um but we're gonna have uh, a really cool show um my guest will be christopher rodkey now uh some of you know uh you might know him he is a pastor at a ucc church out in kind of uh the york area um he's uh been active in politics for kind of quite some time um he's a frequent listener to the show sometimes you hear us comments on the show um and he just recently declared his candidacy. Um, um, he's running um, to basically represent his district, <laughs> right? Um, the state legislator. So this is actually it's absolutely thrilling. Uh, Christopher is going to come on. He's going to be, talk- we'll talk a little bit about his candidacy, um, but given the fact he is a UCC uh, minister too as well, and I've loved his work on this over the years, and I've been wanting, looking for a kind of a good opportunity to have him on the show, and a couple times just things got crazy, um, but this is perfect. It's right before Christmas. He just launched his campaign. It We're going to talk about religion and politics right we're going to talk about that kind of intersection and we're going to take a look at especially some of the kind of extremism that's going on right now so um do tune in for that um that is december 20th at 7 p.m we'll have christopher rodkey and next week on the show will be dina lagerman um talking about her piece and medium called central bucks is not okay and so much more so um yeah, so what are we doing here tonight is the question, right? Well, um, a few things. I also got to give a shout-out to Chuck. Chuck is our most recent patron. Uh, thank you, Chuck, for uh, becoming a patron of Raging Chicken and helped make this show uh, kind of worth doing in some ways uh, in the sense that... Uh, it is, uh, kind of the support of the community that makes it possible, right? Support of people like you. So thank you, Chuck, for, uh, joining, become our newest patron. Um, you can become a patron. Like I said, anybody out there is listening to the show. You're listening to our podcast. Just head on over to patreon.com slash RC press, and you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you're looking for a kind of a, a decent cause that you believe in, right? We hope you believe in us here at raging chicken, um, that you'd be willing to kind of, uh, you know, give us a little, give us a little love this Christmas uh, by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Okay. Sorry. I just had a weird notification come up. Okay. So, um, so tonight's show, we kind of have a few things. tonight we're going to be talking, um, a little bit about the essential work of what we might call organizing muscular social movements in the face of a rather lackluster democratic party leadership. Um, whether we're talking about, um, here on the, uh, at the state, level or if we're talking about um, at the federal level. Um, there's some of that kind of going around depending on kind of where you're located and so on. Now, while the, while the last few years have seen a new vitality in local electoral politics from groups like DSA, from the Women's March, um, PA Stands Up and other like-minded organizations, we continue to see generational defeats and pillars of democratic struggle. And what I mean by that? Well, Look no further than last week's Supreme Court arguments, which seem to indicate that right-wing justices are ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's a generational defeat. Or consider the monumental anti-labor Supreme Court decision in the Janus case that stripped away uh, unions' ability to collect what's called fair share dues. Uh, fair share fees while requiring those um, those same unions to service all those workers who are not members what you know again this is one of the things that was a little bit kind of obscure for folks who might not be in a union right Um, who are not aware of a union um, or, or not aware of all the kind of particulars of a union and you know you say fair share you don't know kind of what this means or you call agency fees seems even more obscure all basically that means you think about it like this So if you get a union contract in a shop, right, whether it's a, you know, like my place, like it's a um, a higher education, whether you're talking about a teacher at a school, whether you're talking about someone who's a steel worker, whether you're talking about somebody who, you know, is in the game industry, right, doesn't matter what industry it is, whatever it is, when you get a union contract, that contract covers all workers, right? So not just the workers who become members of the union, but all workers, Right, and so you are the sole kind of arbiter. Right, it's one of the kind of key things that gets negotiated in the contract. Right, is that when you're looking at wages, hours, and working conditions, that goes through the contract, and the union is the one who negotiates those contracts. So, even if, say, for example, even if you hate unions and you work at that particular place, you still get the benefits, you still get the health care, you still get you guaranteed your raises, right? doesn't help you whether you're for or against the union, right? When it comes to that contract, right? Now we've seen attacks from the right wing kind of against that for a, a long time. And you see this through these kind of um, right to work states where, um, you know, <laughs> where nobody needs to be a member of the union, whatever it might be. Um, but then you also have this idea that, you know, if, if you're not a member of the union, right. Um, and so that you don't pay union dues, right. However, since you also benefited from that contract, right, it had been established law for ages and ages, right, that, uh, you know, well, the union could still charge you what's called an agency fee. That is, um, you know, the amount of kind of the cost that basically it takes that invested into... You know your grievance procedure procedures to make sure that you have somebody who's negotiating your contract right all that kind of goes into ensuring that you have a contract and defending those rights of your contract you have to kind of um kind of kick in right it's kind of like a no free free rider clause right well in the janus decision basically it said like well welcome free riders right is that yes those people they don't want to be a member of the union they don't have to pay the union anything they still get all the benefits of the union The union still has to defend them. The union still has to negotiate their contract. You know, you still has to step up and handle their grievance cases. Right. But they, uh, they don't have to pay anything for it. So they get it all for free. Right. That was kind of part of what we saw in, uh, in the Janus case. Anyways, so we saw that. And we also saw Citizens United, right, which kind of granted free speech rights to corporations and corporations and unions, for that matter. But corporations are where the big bucks is. They could contribute unlimited funds to political campaigns because now they're people, right? And we want to kind of deal with their, you know, violate the the corporations' free speech rights because corporations are individuals, right? Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. So anyways, so all this is taking place against a backdrop of growing extremism in our communities, right? We've talked a lot about this on our show, Um, the resurgence of white supremacist organizations, radical right-wing conspiracists infecting our school boards, and extremists, you know, putting our communities at risk by refusing common-sense COVID protocols, or for that matter, common-sense gun laws that we saw once again, tragically, this past week. So, you know, I thought a little bit about it had been thinking about these issues a lot again and thinking about um some things i've been reading of late and um i thought i'd share some of that with you tonight so um if you listen to our show on friday i i talked a little bit about uh rebecca traster's recent article the Betrayer, betrayal of roe and um i i was also been um kind of listening to the audio audiobook of um uh, Jane McAlevey's "A Collective Bargain: Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy," um, and kind of thinking about all these things together, right? Thinking about what Jane McAlevey was arguing, thinking about what Rebecca Tracer was um, kind of laying out in her critique, also thinking about some of the things that Naomi Klein has been talking um, talked about kind of years ago, and that's why you know I was talking about muscular organizing in our title tonight, in part because. Uh, In her book, Uh, This Changes Everything, kind of about climate change and stuff, she uses that language of uh, muscular social, social movements. And whether or not I had heard about, you know, heard that phrase before, I remember it sticking out to me at the time. And kind of wasn't quite sure how I felt about the word muscular social movements, but the more and more I think about it, the more it makes sense. Like, so, you know, she was basically saying, you know, it's a muscular social, social movement. And if, you know, if you don't exercise those muscles that, you know, those muscles will atrophy. Right. Uh, And using that kind of metaphor. And then, you know, if you remember um, Laura Putnam was on the show a few weeks back And we were talking a lot about kind of democracy and kind of building organizations and organizing around and organizing again. And she talked about you need to practice democracy, right? You need to exercise your your democratic muscles right? Um, and that you have to build up those muscles in order to kind of act them. So she was using the same kind of language. And of course, Jane McAlevey also uses the same kind of language. She's talking about kind of union organizing and the kind of the connections between unions and the defense of democracy and the kind of future for our republic. So I was putting all these things together. Um, and i have also thinking a lot about what kind of brought this front and center to me more than anything else lately is this frustration with um, I, I don't know what what exactly to call it, but kind of let's let's call it kind of like um, like moralistic discourse or or political discourse that's kind of ethically based. And I, I hate to say it like that because it's not like there's what I'm talking about is not ethical. But what I'm talking about is this certain kind of moralism as politics. Right, um, by the kind of upstandedness as politics. Our be our able to, our ability to be able to reference common practices of things like decency, right? Of civility and this other thing as having a force in the world. Right. So it's that idea when somebody is kind of like misbehaves, right, and you point them out, you're going, Oh, I can't believe you did that. And they hang their head in shame and they apologize. I'm so sorry. Right. That kind of nonsense. i I, not kind of nonsense, that kind of process. And as long as people are buying into those, that moral, both that, that moral code, if you will, right. That has some leverage, right? I mean, I'm someone who grew up Catholic. I mean, shame has leverage. Right. Um, it causes people to do things right, when it's kind of deployed in that way, because you that shame only has effect because it's being measured against a kind of a, a, a moral moral kind of discursive background that subjects, individuals, right, embody. Right. And they kind of believe right and act upon. But as we've been talking about on the show for years, really, is that we've seen this kind of this breakaway. Where you have one side of the political spectrum, the Democrats, are still embedded in things like institutions and the sanctity of institutions and this kind of these codes of kind of, I don't know, civility, if you will. Certain kind of moralism as a way of guiding our society forward and all that kind of stuff. Where the other side, right, Republicans have increasingly become, yes, they use the language of morality and religion and all this other kind of stuff, um, but they don't really, they're not bothered by shame. I mean, Donald Trump is only the kind of, you know, he's kind of like, you know, the giant, you know, some come around with a giant red kind of magic marker to kind of dot the I and slash the T, right? You know, basically this is what, you know, this is what we've been talking about. Go Donald. That idea where, you know, people could call out his behavior left and right and he didn't care. Right. And even when you say, Oh my God, he has no shame. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. Because if they have no shame, then saying you have no shame has no effect. Right. Right. So anyways, um, so I was thinking about that and then thinking about what happened in the, in the wake of uh, the Supreme Court hearings, um, particularly the Mississippi case, where they seem to be positioning themselves to um, strike down Roe. You had a lot of people coming out, and you know, talking about the legitimacy of the court, right? I mean, famously, and this is I'm pulling this from a, a, a article from New York Times this past weekend by Adam Liptak, where He was quoting. I mean, people I'm sure are already familiar with this, but Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, "Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading um, are just political acts?" She asked. And then the article also says, if Supreme Court is perceived to be made up of politicians rather than judges, Justice um, Stephen Breyer said, quote, um, that's what kills us as an American institution. Right. And the article goes on to talk about, you know, these kind of questions of legitimacy and what gives uh, the court legitimacy and all this kind of stuff. Um and there does seem to be a kind of a falling legitimacy. So it's not just something that people are making up. Like, so for example, the same article uh, quotes a Quinnipiac University poll from last month that found that 70, 70, I'm sorry, 61% of Americans said that the Supreme Court was mainly motivated by politics, while 32% said it was mainly motivated by the law. Okay, what those numbers mean? Well, you put it to three years previous, three years ago, corresponding numbers were 50 believe that it was motivated by politics, where 42% believe that it was mainly um, motivated by the law. Right? You still had a majority, well, narrowly majority, you know, 50%, not the 50% plus one, but 50% half Americans believe that it was motivated by politics. That's still pretty high. Um, but those ones who thought it was motivated by the law was still with the 42%. So it's kind of, you know, in the area of kind of a closer split. And you see those numbers pull up, pull apart. And so the question is, what does this matter? right I mean and when I, I start seeing a lot of coverage in the news media about the concern over or the ex, the expressed concern over the legitimacy of the court being put forth by Sonia Sotomayor and Stephen Breyer and so on I do believe let me be clear I do believe that they're concerned about that I just don't think that's the political game we're playing anymore and um, just so happens Talia Lavin um, I don't know if you know her she's uh, she she's phenomenal she's she's done great work on um the the kind of extreme right um and she's got this great um this great blog or this great newsletter that's called um uh the sword and the sandwich I, literally it's it's a it's a freaking awesome and awesome uh thing she had this piece that i read last like I, her last a few days ago it came out it was about barbecue right um but it was actually going to the history of barbecue um, and slavery and kind of indigenous food processes and what these barbecues kind of how they're all embedded with questions of race and colonialism it was just absolutely like you know fascinating right so it's this mix and she has these sandwiches and politics and things like this but um the one that came out today was called abortion hypocrisy and the will to power um had no sandwiches in it um And it got to, again, another gloss at what I was talking about um, earlier. So let me just read you a little little bit of her piece from today. She said, The principal lens through which I observe the American right is this. What looks like hypocrisy from the outside can be explained by the pure will to power. At the moment, in the national political landscape, there is ample evidence that the Republican Party and its far-right fellow travelers seek absolute power at all costs. The barest of glances at recent headlines reifies the principle. The comical, tortured, gerrymandering in red and purple states functionally creating a firewall against majority rule, the wholesale erosion of voting rights, the continual insistence central to party orthodoxy that the last presidential election was a fraud, and the exiled and florid would-be king of America is right in his proxy fantasies, the seismic event, once declaimed and now embraced, of the storming of the Capitol... What does the GOP want? A kingdom of Christ on earth ruled by his self anointed elect in practice. To impose a nationally quite unpopular set of principles, mainly naked, nakedly theocratic, and to seal them into unthwartable and uncontravenable law, to purge the nation of undesirables, immigrants, LGBTQ people, Muslims, feminists, and even the knowledge of undesirables, to rule uncontested and utterly dominate those they perceive to be as inferiors." The chief example of such hypocrisy at the moment is the dual and fulsome embrace by Republicans, from elected officials to the rank and file, of simultaneous and apparently contradictory notions of bodies, choice, and privacy. When it comes to vaccination, the individual is sacrosanct. When it comes to pregnancy or the termination of it, private medical choices are criminal acts. "...inconsistency has become the hallmark of a party that flips its principles like flapjacks whenever they conflict with perceived political advantage," unquote, says an acid editorial in the Boston Globe. Quote, "...hypocrisy will continue until the voters decide they have had enough," adds the West Central Tribune, or Tribune. "...but hypocrisy is a strange charge. The allegation of it demands shame and introspection, a desire to straighten one's principles out until they are truthful." It is meant to sting, but in order for such a claim to have weight and be internalized, the opinions of the accusers must matter to the accused. And that is not the case when, thinly veiled under grandiose moral pronouncement, the will to rule without opposition and to crush all those in the way is what rules. When you desire such a regime, all objections can be made without the muling insignificant complaint. If control is the aim and the subjugation of women is the goal in this last Supreme Court case in particular, it simply does not matter if there is a torsion of principle or double standard or a flaw that can be highlighted. The more errant the hypocrisy, the more brazen the contradiction, the stronger the party that continues to advocate those policies grows, having been stripped of shame on the grounds that those who would seek to invoke it are bereft of worth. Any flaw is null and void because the people pointing it out mean nothing. Boom. Right on the nose, if you ask me. Right on the nose. So she basically... um, She's basically... I think so there, that they're that same kind of frustration with the, this is hypocrisy, but calling it out as the will to power. And, you know, you know, I've been saying this on our on our show for for quite some time now. It's like that's what they carry about. They care about. It. They care about power. Power is the ethical center for the right. Right. Not moral power, just power to enact a will. And what that will is, it's a white supremacist patriarchal rule. That's it. You know, Margaret Atwood's, you know, was... uh, She did the best thing that you could do with science fiction, right? With The Handmaid's Tale. She basically laid out the trajectory and said, this is the logical conclusion of a particular tendency of thought in this country. If this... Colonel is not addressed, this is where it ends up. And we could argue about, you know, how extreme it could get and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, look, I mean, she's not far off, right? We ought to receive what's getting set up here in the, this Mississippi Supreme Court case where, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, the, you know, sexual abuser himself... When he comes out and says, well, this is a little too complicated, you know, because maybe we should just leave it up to the states, you know, because the states know best. Right. And so play that out for yourself. Right. You know what happens? Okay, so Mississippi says, "Okay, yep, no more abortion. There was an article in uh, I don't know what I did with that piece. That I was looking oh, here we go on the American Prospect today, um by Felicia Kornblue. I think it was this one I was reading when she was or maybe no, no, no. Actually this was the also from the American Prospect, but it was the interview with the um the I think the district attorney, the the attorney general of Michigan, where she was saying that look, you already see you're gonna have you're gonna have, you know, the you're gonna set up this infrastructure that's gonna allow, you know, to help try to help support women for escaping. Right, in order to have abortions. Right. And she also points out it's like, look, it's not like once you kind of once you once you destroy this, right? Any kind of rights to privacy, maybe you're kind of, you know, same sex marriage, for example, can be gone. And you have people fleeing these states. Right? What happens in the handmaid's tale, right? You have this split right you have the kind of like the holy nation right which is all about the kind of controlling a women's bodies and white supremacy and patriarchy that's what fascism's all about folks right and this is what this is i mean let's be clear so what do i do with this other piece so that i mean that's been the kind of thing that's been on my mind and when when uh Talia Lavin was was put that in her uh, in her piece. What did I do with that? Here we go. Um, I don't know why I lost this one version of what I had here. Well, I guess I'll deal with this one. That's just strange. Um, it, When, you know, when she had that piece, I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I've been talking about. This is exactly the kind of thing I mean, obviously she puts it a heck of a lot better than I ever could. Um, but that's really, oh, here it is. Um, but that's really key. That's really key. So, all right. So what I, what I wanted to do is like, there's this piece that I talked a little bit about on Friday by Rebecca Traster. And, um, I am obviously I'm not going to read all of it. Um, but this is another one of these pieces that's, you know, I think kind of critical to check out. Um, so this is a betrayal of role of Roe by Rebecca Traster. Oh, you know what, every, every time when I do this, uh, people ask me for links. Um, so let me just go ahead and I'm gonna drop in the link to um, um, Talia Lavin's piece. This is from her um, her blog, or this is from, yeah, from her, I guess on her, me now it's her blog, we'll say the blog, uh, the sword, and the sandwich. the link to it oh that's a that's a big link oh hold on i gotta make it a small link it was too big it wasn't (laughs) i didn't realize that it was going to do that okay here you go and that's the link to the that one particular article Um, i'll put in right now before i get into rebecca tracer's piece um the link to her article too as well called the betrayal of roe Here we go. Rebecca Tracester. There you go. That's from New York Mag. So what she does is kind of levels out this particular kind of critique. And um, where we go. So instead of like trying to describe her too much, let me just go ahead and. Let her speak. Or let, I'll read her words, I should say. So, this is it. In the aftermath of the Supreme Court's oral arguments this week on the fate of Roe v. Wade, in which a phalanx of right-wing justices made plain their disdain for the law, has been a festival of finger-pointing and recrimination by those who were startled to have woken up in a world in which it looks very much like the right to legal abortion, abortion care will soon cease to exist at the federal level. And she says she understands that impulse, moves on. But this impulse is itself short-sighted and self-serving in that it allows us to evade the far more suffocating and incriminating reality that we got to this terrifying place, not just by some wrong turn made recently by one wrong person we don't like, but by a decades long systemic failures. The biggest and most damning of these is the failure to counter a regressive movements project to ensure minority rule and thus dismantle the rights and protections won by activists who labored over generations to gain them. Abortion rights very much included. That failure in turn reflects a deeper one an unwillingness to take the full humanity of women, of pregnant people, of black and brown and poor people seriously. just read that one part the biggest and most damning of these is the failure to counter a regressive movements project to ensure minority rule and thus dismantle the rights and protections won by activists who labored over generations to gain them if there's a theme about what raging chicken is about that's it we were born in the wake of the tea party victories of 2010 when we saw what was happening in Wisconsin, where labor rights were being stripped away in Wisconsin. And then we saw this right-wing playbook start to roll out across the country in very short succession, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Idaho. Right. There was a playbook that was put together. And then shortly after it rolled out, we found, thanks to the kind of the, the fan, the fantastic folks at the um, I'm always forgetting their name lately. I don't know the um, the, the Media Institute. I'm sorry. In um, in, in Wisconsin. Um, that. Yep. Thanks to their their work called Alec Exposed. This was the American Legislative Exchange Council and the Koch brothers. Right. We learned about them. And then all this amazing reporting came out about the Koch brothers, about this decades long of dark money, you know, dark money, that book, Jane Mayer's book, laying out this like decades long attack. Exactly what Rebecca Tracer says here. The attack on majority rule an attempt to ensure minority rule which even though the libertarian Koch brothers always had this kind of like, you know, libertarian economic stuff in here, there was always the kind of like patriarchal white supremacist kind of structure built into that in such a way they didn't need to say it. They were doing that alongside the religious right and all this other stuff. This has been going on. So that's what she says. Back to her. The overturn of Roe will not be about one failed electoral campaign or badly timed Supreme Court death or failure to retire. Though, as with any historical cataclysm, its timing and shape will have been determined by those factors, sure. But Roe, like the Voting Rights Act that was gutted in 2013 and the labor and climate and anti-corporate and gay rights protection that have been and will continue to be rolled back, it would not have been made vulnerable to these quirks of timing and personality had it ever had the kind of institutional, ideological, intellectual, and emotional muscle behind it that it deserved. Its loss will reflect years of inattention from those entrusted with its guardianship. By definition, the people nearest to the top of our power structures, people who advertise themselves as invested in the rights and protections of people of color to the bottom, yet who have repeatedly failed to prioritize those people's dignity and well-being, to even really see much less care about the daily lived impact of abortion prohibition. She goes to some of the history there too, but I'm like, man, I mean, I remember her, I remember Rebecca Tracer going on, uh, on the Chris Hayes show, um, all in with Chris Hayes. This was, uh, back when Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just died, right? I mean, and it was clear that Donald Trump was going to be able to port, um, appoint yet another Supreme Court justice that was effectively, and, you know, just in one of the worst, just kind of disgusting moves, immediately replace RBG with, you know, somebody who's going to overturn her life's work, basically, you know? I mean, it's just, like, incredible. But, and... As is the case, I mean, as, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. I mean, at the time, everybody was faced with that, right? You know, she's talking about this, the peculiarities. And there was a lot, you know, even on this show, let's let's be clear, right? I mean, you know, remember despairing that, that you know, she had not, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had not retired before the election. But. You, me, everybody, all the pollsters, you know, whatever. Everyone thought that with a ha- with a handful of people, a handful of people thought otherwise. But, you know, most people like thought Hillary Clinton was a Sherwin. We never get someone like Trump. And well, here we go. Here we are. Those are those peculiarities. But her point when she was on that show, which was on Chris Hayes, she's like, look, we can despair all we can. But the, 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 the only reason we're despairing right now is because we've abandoned the work that activists had built for, it took them generations to build. And the Democratic Party walked away from it. Liberals walked away from it. Yes, said the right things, but refused to fight. And gradually allowed Roe to be chipped away. And not just Roe, as she points out, labor rights. democratic rights, voting rights. The right to marry who you will is now getting chipped away again. She goes on a little bit further and she says, she talks about the Hyde Amendment. Well, I'll read this part. So it says... The Democratic Party, including its presidents over the decades, has not taken seriously enough the threat to abortion rights. It's not that these politicians didn't officially support the correct thing, right? So what they said were words, right? What they would support. Like Barack Obama opposed the Hyde Amendment, right? That restriction. But he also described the, quote, tradition in this town historically of not financing abortions as part of government-funded health care, unquote. He bought that argument. He said that out loud. The tradition. Instead of saying no, bad tradition. (laughs) He said, oh, no, we're just going to. Okay. And again, this is not about Barack Obama. Any more than, this is her again, this is Rebecca Traister again. This is not about Barack Obama. Any more than it is about Hillary Clinton, who offered one of the most powerful public explications of abortion as healthcare of any Democrat during her debate against Donald Trump. I remember that. It was was amazing. Right. But, and in italics and who is rumored to have devised the regressive quote, safe, legal, and rare framework in the 1990s that cast abortion as a regrettably necessary evil, not a cornerstone of comprehensive healthcare. Right. Or is it about Bernie Sanders? She writes, who has uh, remained a staunch opponent of the Hyde Amendment or any abortion restriction throughout his entire career, but and has argued that voters could get past their differences on gun and abortion and find common economic ground, as if abortion is it not self is not itself an economic issue. Right, she's right through the political spectrum. He's on the Democratic side of things. We know where the Republicans stand, right? So she writes, it's about a Democratic party that has before and since Roe included lots of politicians who believe in abortion rights and access, and access but simply do not prioritize it, who have argued that their party should be more and not less open to those who actively oppose abortion if they are otherwise progressive on economic issues as if those stances are compatible. They are not. Democratic leadership chose not to fight vocally the Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, or Amy Coney Barrett as being an assault on legal legal abortion, even though the president who nominated them had directly promised anti-abortion groups, quote, another two or perhaps three justices, unquote, who would, quote, automatically, in my opinion, overturn Roe. Right? You remember that we're going to give them a fair hearing. We're going to look at their legal decisions, defending the, you know, trying to kind of perform the institution in the face of another party who is driven by the will to power only. They have no, if if Donald Trump was not, I mean, we heard How many times did you hear Donald Trump is an existential threat to the democracy? But they would say, we need a strong Republican Party. No, the Republican Party has become that existential threat. It's not just one person. And you've got a party that's supposedly standing up for the rest of us. who's giving, well, you we gotta give a chance. Well, you know, they're not that bad. Well, we have to do, th- you know, this kind of thing. They'll come around. No, They'll st- they're standing by and enabling them. They're watching and providing some degree of cover for the assault on women's health care, a right to abortion, the right to a living wage. The right to vote. The right to democracy. Right? She continues. This was right out there for everyone on the broadly defined left to see, hear, and fight tooth and nail against. But again and again, those at the top of the party signaled that it was not a fight worth having and have remained quiet even as Republicans cast the, cast the ones who were fighting it as deranged. During Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass lectured on how there had been, quote, been screaming protesters saying women are going to die at every hearing for decades. Well, Sass was correct. There have been those protesters, and they have been treated as hysterics, not just by Sass himself, but by the party that should have been letting their intensity guide them. Make no mistake, Tracer writes, make no mistake, those protesters have been correct for all the years and all the hearings, yet Democrats have permitted an inaccurate, dishonest right-wing framework, the notion that abortion is some hot-button issue on which the country is sharply divided, when in fact the protection of the right to legal abortion is one of the most popular planks in a Democratic platform, even in red states to keep them from making political fights about abortion. I'm sure that the argument behind this can be backed up by some pollster or numbers guy or consultant, but the big unspoken reason is that most politicians, the majority of whom remain white men and many of the rest wealthy white women who themselves will never know inaccessibility of health care, find abortion icky and distasteful because they find the bodies and lives and needs of people who need abortions icky and distasteful. This is such a freaking dead on and scathing assessment of what's going on. I'm going to skip a little bit and read this one part. She's like, look, it's going to need a movement. Will there be protests? Will there be marches? Yeah, of course. Right. She says, but will that movement produce satisfying results in many of our lifetimes? I am afraid not, because the failure to understand or reckon with that drive for liberation and more, the failure to understand or reckon with the drive to squelch it has now left millions of people fucked for a very long time. The finger pointing that we're going to do for days and weeks and months and years is another iteration of our failures to recognize what's actually in front of us because with easy demonization comes the fantasy of easy salvation. That's a freaking brilliant line because with easy demonization comes the fantasy of easy salvation. If one terrible person broke it, Surely one with one other wonderful person can fix it. But that's not true. There is no one politician, no one activist, no single protest or perfect approach to activism that will offer any quick remedy here. Instead, the future is messy and sad and difficult and extremely bleak. If the Supreme Court does indeed strike down Roe, many of us will not live to see its reverse these rights were decades in the winning decades in the undoing and will again be decades in the remaking i do not mean this i do not mean despair or accepting defeat which would be yet another instance of giving in to short-term comfort and ease it's incumbent upon us not to check out not to give up as it will be tempting to do on most days to not evade responsibility by shifting the blame to others, but instead to face the future with respect owed to our forebearers and a crystal clear vision of who is going to be suffering right now in the coming years. She goes on a little bit more. I'm telling you, this is like uh, I remember when I I, I I listened and I watched the hearings on that Wednesday and I I kept on saying, I said, I can't remember I don't know how many people I, I said this to at the time, but I'm like I'm just like have you, has has Rebecca Tracer written anything yet? Right, I'm just like, I really need I, I I really need to hear her words. For it was kind of like a like a check, you know. I mean, it's like I sometimes worry that, um, you know that I that I kind of lose that point of connection right that because you know paying such close attention to this and so on and things like this and say so, you know am, as am i am i seeing this as a bigger issue than it is not not that this was clear i mean the supreme court hearing was clear but i mean like are, are we really headed down this 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 horrible path right is this really you know is it just my you know constitutional whatever drive toward seeking out problems or something. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like that self questioning that always goes on that, that you always have. And, that, and Rebecca Tracer has been one of those people that is just, basically, you know, remind me, dude, no, you're not. You're not. This is real. And I want to add just one other, I'm not going to spend as much time with this and because I knew knew this would happen. I was just concerned that I was trying to pack too much in tonight, but you know, I I just finished um, a a book by yet another amazing woman. um, um, Jay McAlevey. Um, The book is called a collective bargain. And um, it was, an incredibly hopeful book. And, and it, and it seemed to like pair extraordinarily well with Rebecca Traster's assessment. And I, you know, I, if I really sat down to think about it enough, I could probably draw you a really more direct line about why that, why that is the case. But what McAlevey, I, I guess it's this really, I mean, it's what Rebecca Tracer just kind of ends on there, right? This is kind of in our hands, right? and it's gonna take a remaking. What Jane McAlevey, right? Jane McAlevey is always, for those of you who don't know who she is, she's like just an amazing union organizer. I mean, she worked with SCIU 1199 for years. She's uh, become, you know, uh, she's written several books on union organizing. Um, um, The the No Shortcuts is a book, literally when she published No Shortcuts, um, which was basically about doing union organizing and kind of organizing for power. Um, I bought several copies of them. We were leading up to the strike, um, the Abscov strike, and I handed them out to people on the organizing committee because I was like, th- "This is like I, I, for me. It was like it was like a gift <laughs> that 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 Jay McAlevy wrote this book and just kind of like got my own head straight in terms of thinking about organizing and what it would entail, the kind of work that was necessary to do this. That you know that our, we were having lots of issues at the time with our with our state leadership who really <clears throat> wanted to kind of keep this as a much more controlled, control the communications, control how the organization take place, try to keep everybody happy. Right. And we were what, I mean, Jay McLevy says in a, in kind of a collective bargain, she basically said, look, the job of a union, the power of a union comes its ability to disrupt and create a crisis for the employer. That's it. A union without a credible strike threat is a union that does not have power. Period. That is everything that I mean if I had to boil her stuff down to, to in a nut, that's it. And again, it's and what Jay McAlevey is 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 you know talking about, she has this thing. All right, this is a little bit off when I want to say, this, but she it's just amazing. If you go to her website, um she's got a bunch of the, you know, some of the pictures and you know, different consultants. They have Negotiations committee meetings, right? I mean like negotiating sessions with the opposition. You have your negotiating team and there's there's negotiating sessions where there's a hundred other workers in the room. She is insistent that negotiation should be open and that any worker who is gonna be covered by that contract, has the right, any union member, has the right to be at that table too. And if you've been spent any time within unions, you know that that is kind of like, that freaks some people out. Certainly freaks our union leadership out. The idea that you have everyone at the table, holy crap. And not just there to witness, but there to even participate and they've been part of the process from the get-go because the contract has gone from the ground up not from the top down right that's what she's talking about what's really interesting about this book the you know, collective bargain now collective a collective bargain is that she got this one chapter um it, it's uh let me see workers can still win big right and she goes through and she basically does like I, I i said to my friend mike i said you know I wish I had this book years ago right when i was first getting involved with union stuff it's like you know it starts really with basics like what is a union right and this is not the first thing she says in the book but this you know and she's basically said, look what is it this is what they at district 1199 sciu everyone had to memorize this right and they had to know this by heart and they said what is it what is a union a collective effort by all employees who work for an employer to stop the boss from doing what you don't want him to do, discharge unfair layoff promotion, speed up, et cetera, to make the boss do what you want him to do more pay vacations, holidays, health coverage, pensions, et cetera. And to be used in any other way, the members see fit. That's it. It's real simple. <laughs> That's it. That's what a union is. Right. And, and I'm like, yes, and she says, "Look, you got to got to think about you know union. You got to think about a union is basically like, you know, a union is basically a mechanism, right? There's nothing that makes it inherently good, or nothing that makes it inherently bad, although its internal rules and how it functions can influence its effectiveness, right? Just like everything, because unions are made up of people, and the structures reflectability. So you're going to have bad people up there sometime. and sometimes you're going to build structures." that make it less effective, that make it disconnected from workers. That's what all business unionism is all about where you have a, a group of experts that kind of dictate things and they give messages. Communication is pretty much one way, right? It's not an organizing model where you're, you recognize your power is not in your kind of in the communication skills and negotiation skills of the leadership, but actually in the power of the strike readiness of its workers. Right. And then she also says, like, look, if the governance systems encourage participation by the best and the most diverse workers, the union will reflect the best and most diverse workers values. Conversely, if the organization is a do nothing union, just like elected politicians, uh, I'm sorry, it will reflect the least good values among the workforce, just like elected politicians and their constituents unions often differ based on the culture of the employer on the type of workforce, no different from States, which differ based upon the types of people that make up its population. Unions then are far from more monolithic. And she says a quote, there is significant variation among the different branches of the same union. And she goes into that a little bit. I meant to say, or is this one part I wanted to say, Oh, anyways. So that's what, that's what kind of, you know, she goes in. she goes into that kind of stuff and it kind of lays through some of that stuff. And that whole idea about, look, a union that doesn't do good right is a do nothing union it will reflect the, the values of those folks that you know are going to make it less effective people who like like to be around managers right like to kind of like are more interested in their own personal status than they are in the building power of the workforce that worry about being uncomfortable when talking to their bosses a union that's afraid of conflict, Right? Is a union that will fail. My view. So, one of the other things that she says in this book that is, you know, most important that I want to kind of close on, she's like, She's, she, she does a series of case studies in here. One of them, which is the um, the um, Passnap um, nurses from Philadelphia, right? Um, just uh, the whole chapter on the nurses organizing project. You've got to read this book. It's freaking amazing. And read that stuff from um, for, about the Passnap stuff. It's just absolutely incredible, right? Um, she also talks about you know teachers organizing in West Virginia. I mean, you know, it's just a super, super book. Um, but she makes this point, right, in, in A Collective Bargain. And here it is, quote, Despite the weakened state of most unions, workers today who are either forming new ones or reforming, reforming older ones point us in the direction of how to solve the crisis engulfing our society and our politics. In the midterm elections in 2018, dubbed the Year of the Woman, the misogyny oozing from the White House was somewhat rebuked at the polls. Yet, the year before, working women scored a series of thir- thoroughly impressive wins just after Donald Trump lost the popular vote but eked out a win from the Electoral College. Many of those victories received far less media attention. and as, the midterm elections, as in the midterm elections, men contributed to these wins, certainly, but the central characters were women, often women of color who waged tireless campaigns on which the outcomes would have drastic consequences. And chapter one, she's talking about here, discusses three such examples of women, 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 big. The arena for these battles was the workplace. In the most female sectors of the economy, such as healthcare, education and hospitality, but also in the tech sector, where sexual harassment and gender pay gaps served as a stark reminder that despite the tech elite's rhetoric of building a new society, nothing much has changed unless you count the creation of, of a new generation of Silicon Valley billionaires as progress. Women worker-led policy changes included people wresting control of their schedules away from tone-deaf managers, most of whom had never had to pick up their kids at the bus stop, securing fair and meaningful pay raises, achieving bold new safeguards from sexual predators, and ending racism and other discriminatory practices in their salary structure. The mechanism for securing these victories was the collective bargaining process, and each involved strikes, the key leveraging mechanisms of unions. And this is the key point. Strikes are uniquely powerful under the capitalist system because employers need one thing and one thing only from workers, to show up and make the employer money. When it comes to forcing the top executives to rethink their pay, benefits, or other policies, there's no form of regulation more powerful than a serious strike. The strikes that work the best and win the most are the ones in which at least 90% of all the workers walk out, having first forged unity among themselves and with their broader community. To gain the trust and support of those whose lives may be affected, smart unions work diligently to erase the line separating the workplace from society. The methods organizers use to achieve these kinds of all-out strikes require the discipline and focus of devoting almost all of their time and effort to reaching out to workers who don't initially agree, or who even may think that they are opposed to the strike, if not the entire idea of the union. This commitment to consensus building is exactly what's needed to save democracy. To win big, we have to follow the methods of spending very little time engaging with people who already agree— and devote most of our time to the harder work of helping people who do not agree come to understand who is really to blame for the pain in their lives. Pulling off a big successful strike means talking to everyone, working through hard conversations over and over until everyone agrees. All-out strikes then produce something desperately needed today. Clarity about the two sides of any issue. Big strikes are political education bigly. And that was, I think, where I put those things together, Rebecca Tracer and Jay McAlevey. That idea that the shame politics of calling people out for hypocrisy, worrying about the legitimacy of our things was going to get us nowhere. Morality politics not going to function, not going to work, not going to be effective. What Rebecca Traister points us to is the fact that, look, this took generations to win. And yes, a lot of the organizing around Roe v. Wade and things like this, yes, that took place not in unions, but unions were also a big part of that. And yes, they were contradictory and at times they were regressive and they were, kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Just as feminist movement and women's movement has been fraught with these kind of intersectionalities that kind of have, have had to kind of like have sometimes set the movements back and have sometimes put them forward. But that idea of organizing 90%, the ability to say, no, we will not do it. And you know, I would take it. I would take it one step further. I, I, I tend to agree with McAlevey that you know the workplace is the place where we can we can negotiate concretely for power, as long as we are strike ready, as long as we have a workforce that is prepared for, is trained for, and is organized for a strike. If a union is not investing significant amount of resources in training its members for a strike, that union is ceding its effectiveness to the boss. Our power, as Rick Smith has always said, is that ability to put our hands in our pockets and say no. And I would extend that beyond the workplace. That has been the calling card of any social movement worth its weight. Women who have refused to keep the patriarchy churning and said no. Demanded their rights and fought for them. Said business as usual will not continue. We are going to put an end to that. That is true to the civil rights movement. We will no longer say yes. We will no longer allow the system to continue. To churn our lives away. We will say no. And it's a bit, that little bit of irony, right? The saying of no. The refusal to work for an exploitative re- employer. An employer who basically doesn't think that, you know, I don't know. Paid parental leave is actually, you know, just a, just a thing that everybody should have. We say, yes, yes, it is something everyone. And if they say no, we stick our hands in our pocket and we say, well, good luck. Good luck teaching your students. Good luck making your widget. Good luck selling your books. Good luck driving your delivery vans. Good luck with that. And it's uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable. You know, this is what, like, Antonio Gramsci, right? I Mrs. Mean, Gramsci called hegemony, right? The consent of the masses even if it's begrudging consent doesn't matter as long as we're willing to continue to punch the card and go in as long as we're willing to kind of say well it sucks there's no alternative as long as we're to throw up our hands and think that this is the best that we can do that's consent in political terms Saying no is an affirmation to the many yeses, right? Saying no, I will not allow myself to be part of this exploitation, and not just me as an individual. That's the key thing, right? So it's not just just this is not just about me as an individual and what I do. It's what we do. Because as Jane McAlevey and everyone else that we talked about here tonight, and Jane McAlevey will say, right? Yeah, you and I've talked about this on the show before, right? You have one of us. Who thinks we're the kind of like moral high point, right? And we decide by ourselves to show that we will not stand, we will not stand for this individually, we'll say no. Well, we get fired. <laughs> right? Good luck. Hope your morality's intact, buddy. <laughs> you know? Good for you. Right? Aren't you special? Right? It's the same thing, like, you know, you see all the kind of like, you know you know, this is this, that one aspect of, 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 like call out culture, right. Where, you know, th- there's, there's an aspect of call out culture where you're calling out really bad behavior that needs to stop and people organize together and make to call that out and say, we're going to to end and then it ends. Right. There's a different kind of call out culture is just about kind of someone demonstrating, right. It's so the virtual signaling thing, right. And the, the left and the right do it both. Right. The whole idea, like, you know, I'm going to kind of show you that I'm the kind of more moral human being by what I'm going to say right now, but that's going to be the end of my participation in kind of this, you know, struggle, whatever. But that hard work and look, you know, I mean, you know, I read Rebecca Tracer and, and I read Jane McAlevey's book and am I reading this stuff and I'm, I'm really thinking hard about my own participation, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm really thinking hard about, okay, how do I make this possible? How do, do I prioritize this kind of organizing and being part of that solution? You know, um, you know, on a personal note, and I think that's come from me is I felt like, you know, and I've said this on the show before, so this is not going to be like, you know, a revelation to too many people, but um, it's, uh, I, I, I believed deeply in higher education, right? I believe deeply in, uh, in, you know, in, the, in that, that process of, engaging real ideas, right. And thinking through things and thinking about possibilities and democracy. And, and I believe that higher education was one of the, the the key places to do this. And, you know, I still do like, you know, abstractly, but just on a, you know, on a personal level, and there's a lot of complicated reasons for this that, you know, I, I'm not going to kind of drag all that stuff through the mud, but is that, you know, I had slowly over time, I had that you know, passion, you know, snuffed out of me. Right. I felt like, you know, and I still feel like this way to a large degree, but you know, that the things that I cared about most and what I did in terms of my job or just, and my union work, you know, were just kind of like taken. And it felt like, you know, I put in all this work and I really, I really did. I really had a belief that if you did work over time, you did work over time. And, uh, and you know, I work with other people who who did the same thing, and you you know, you you try to build and you try to build something up, and you, you think that's going to pay off, right? Um, and sometimes it doesn't, right? Sometimes it doesn't. It just it doesn't, right? It doesn't doesn't work out. But other times it feels, you know, at least for me, getting left in a place where. I don't know. I don't know. even know how to put it. But in a certain like place of just kind of like hopelessness is not even the right word. Just kind of like it just feels like, okay, you guys won. You know, I mean, the powers that be, you win. I've got nothing left. And I, you know, I think i have finally kind of taken a turn out of that space over this. You know, and ironically, that's something the pandemic did for me personally is to kind of uh, reset a little bit of my, you know, my relationship to to my job and my work and things like this. And and I think it's, you know, and it's, you know, panning out in a kind of a much more positive way now, certainly, in terms of like where I'm focused on. And it's also brought me back to, you know, like I say with J. McAlee, Rebecca Tracer and stuff like this, is like, you know, really this is what matters. And sometimes the wins can be painful. I mean sorry, the losses can be painful, but um, the winds, uh, are necessary and, you know, building, you know, it's a cliche, but building things is always a lot harder and takes more time than tearing things down. And you hope you get to the point where you get to see, you know, the, you know, the finished building, right. That you're working on. Um, but I think a lot of times we end up, you know, we, we, we lay some bricks. You know, we paint a wall, you know, we uh, plant a garden, right? And we have that vision that we're, where we're going, right? Where we want to go, where we want to go, where we hope to go. And that's what keeps us moving, right? And the idea that, you know, we look for those places where we can find spaces to treat each other in the way that, gives us an inkling of what that future could look like you know and finding those spaces of kindness and joy and love and stuff are, are hard right so but that's that anyways I've uh taken y'all way longer than I uh than I was planning on for the evening uh thank y'all for tuning in um and uh I know I did a lot of talking tonight but there's a lot, kind of a lot on my mind and uh thank you for putting up with me um, want to remind you that next week we are going to be here with uh, Dina Legerman. Uh, Dina Legerman is a former candidate for Buck or for uh, Central Buck School District School Board, um, and who was on the receiving end of a lot of uh, you know dark money. Paul Martino's uh, uh, dumping all this kind of cash into that school district. You know, so we'll talk a little about her. We'll talk about her amazing article called uh central bucks is not okay that'll be on uh december 13th at 7 p.m and then one week later uh december 20th um the that had christmas week as it were um we will have uh christopher rodke on the show and he is we're gonna talk about religion and politics and uh kind of this kind of rise of the right wing and also his uh his new candidacy uh he'll be running for uh, office in his district over in the kind of uh the york area and so we got a couple of real good shows that will kind of take us up to that and my guess is that um that may be the last out to coop live of 2021 um on the 20th because the following week is the 27th uh, we may or may not do show most likely not we might be away during that show and then be the new year. So coming right up on 2022 real quick. So anyways, everybody listen, I'm thinking about you and I'm uh, appreciating all that you've done to help support the show that all that you're doing out there to organize in the communities. Um, and uh, you know, um, as we kind of come out of this slowly, hopefully come out of this pandemic, which is, you know, has done, taken such a toll on so many of us and, um, that uh we're gonna be able to do some more of this in person hopefully soon because i would freaking love to hang out with some folks um that i you know i know only through uh the work we do here at raging chicken um so thank you anyways this is kevin mahoney editor and founder of raging chicken um i appreciate all the work that everybody's doing out there and uh, i really look forward to being here every week so We'll see you next week. We'll see you later this week. Um, We're out to coop. See ya.